0: Hello and welcome to the Aquarius podcast. I'm your host Randy Reed. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Aquarium Co-op. And for this episode, let's talk about the Aquarium Co-op course sponge filter. Let's talk about a couple features here of what make this sponge filter awesome and what I wish when uh, I had built my fish room. I wish I was already a co-op employee. I wish we'd already kind of gone through the motions or when I say motions, I mean like a year of development going back and forth with the manufacturer on this one. Uh, but I wish this thing was available so I wouldn't have had to have bought like a 12 pack of generic sponge filters on Amazon and all the challenges that came with that. So feature number one, the coarse sponge material. So we're using a 20 PPI across the line so that's 20 pores per inch and what that means compared to uh, normal sponge filters are going to be about 40 to 50 ppi so there's gonna be a lot more density there's gonna be a lot more uh, many more pores per inch in the generic or the other brand sponge filters now having fewer pores makes it a coarser material and there's two really cool things about that the first being and honestly one of my favorite features is the instant sink All right. Now, if you've ever set up a sponge filter or if you set up a lot of sponge filters, uh, more often than not, you will actually have some trouble getting the sponge filter to sink. So they all have a weighted base, but sometimes that base is not heavy enough to initially sink a larger size sponge filter that has a very, very high pore density. So this sounds like, oh, that sounds like a mild annoyance, but could actually lead to your tank uh, splurting water out your sponge filter, not sinking to the bottom right? It's floating. There's so much air trapped in there. The sponge is actually driving. It's for the air pump is actually still driving. So it's forcing air into the sponge filter, water's coming up the uplift tube. And some of it, if you're not, if you don't have a lid on your tank, can actually go outside of the tank. So having a sponge filter that's going to sink to the bottom is convenient, but it's also a feature that's going to help keep water off of your tank, off of your floor, off of your stand. Um, And so you're saying, well, why don't you just catch it and make it so that it doesn't happen, squeeze the sponge, it'll sink to the bottom. Well, guess what? You can do that when you're present in the fish room, but when you leave, I have gone back to the fish room numerous times, and I've had sponge filters all the way up at the top that were sunk the entire time I was in the fish room the night before. Right, so that that is just a thing that happens. The second awesome thing about a coarser sponge is that, uh, in my opinion, less maintenance. Right, so it's not as fine; it's not going to trap gunk nearly as fast as a higher density sponge filter will. And so that means you don't have to go in there and squeeze it out as nearly as often. Uh, Now I'm not going to lie in some tanks, I actually have never serviced my sponge filters and other tanks I have, right? So depending on the bio load, but that's something nice to have that it's not going to get clogged up nearly as fast. And that's not to say you shouldn't maintain your sponge filters, but you shouldn't have to maintain them nearly as often. And then another awesome feature about this is that you can actually use an air stone inside the body of the sponge filter. So instead of just having the air tube going down the uplift tube and just having uh, straight bubbles coming out of an air tube through the uplift, right? So that's going to cause your, your suction. That's where you're going to get the flow in the sponge filter. You can actually pair this up with this air stone and you will get uh, great control over your bubbles. You can make really, really fine bubbles. And I'm no scientist, right? But uh, finer bubbles, more bubbles, it's going to help to draw in more air so you get more circulation. And again, with this air stone, you can actually can control that. You can have different amounts of stack of fabric in this air stone. So you can really, really fine tune it. So the combination of this air stone with aquarium co-op sponge filter is just a match made in heaven. So I hope you enjoyed that little spiel. There's still other features about this uh, sponge filter, like the fact that the base the cap and the uplift tube are green. It's going to do so much of a better job hiding algae. You can see that in the fish room tour of my fish room in the on the Aquarium Co-op YouTube channel where one tank has a clear uplift tube and you can clearly see that the, the algae growing on it, which in my fish room, not that big of a deal, but from an aesthetic perspective, if somebody is concerned about that, having green bases, having a green uplift tube is going to help to hide that algae. So many, many features in this. You know, we took the, the, the basically the standard run of the mill sponge filter and we put, you know, three, three or four tweaks on this thing to make it so, you know, just to, just to make it from like kind of an A minus, B plus kind of product to being an A plus product. So again, Aquarium Co-op Sponge Filters, go check it out, aquariumcoop.com. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Thursday, March 26th, 2020. My guest today is Dr. Ted Coletti. Ted has over 30 years of experience in the hobby and has developed a passion for live bears, not only to work with in the present, but also about their history. He also specializes in container ponds and water gardening. Dr. Coletti is an active speaker on the East Coast and at NEC conventions. In addition, he's also written numerous articles appearing in Tropical Fish Hobbyist magazine and has his own books, Aquarium Care of Live-Bearing Fish, and his recent book, The Tub Pond Handbook, available on Amazon. Ted also takes an active role in helping to run clubs and organizations such as the American Live Bear Association, founding the Aquarium Hobby Historical Society, Skylands Aquarium Water Garden Group, and sitting on the board of the NEC. So, Ted, welcome to the podcast
1: Thanks, Randy. How are you doing during this time?
0: <laughs> I am doing. Uh, I'm doing pretty You're well. You're surviving. I'm. I'm. Okay. Sur- I'm surviving. I definitely live in the epicenter of uh, coronavirus, unfortunately, here in the on the the east side Seattle area of, of Washington State. But uh, oh, okay, you know, I'm staying healthy. My family's staying healthy. Uh, our our business aquarium co-op, we're still running. We are considered an essential business to make sure we get. Uh, oh you yeah. Know, food for fish. You know, you don't want your uh, your pets to have to suffer as well during this time period. But you know, I
1: enjoyed your booth at the aquatic experience last november
0: oh nice we the one we're... and uh
1: the aquarium co-op yeah what, were we giving anything away at that one you were giving away that wonderful um krill flake ah, food. Ah,
0: yes yes
1: that was very popular the line went all the way down um for that one and you guys were very friendly and you know answering a lot of uh questions so thanks for coming to that event that's a that's a really great event 'Cause I think the aquatic experience brings vendors, fish clubs, and people who we call unclubbed all together in one place. So
0: yeah, you did hear the unfortunate news though that they're not they're actually discontinuing the aquatic experience.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's a shame.
0: Yeah. So two time guest on the podcast, Zach Frank, he was working for World Pet Association. That was really that was one of the things that he was really championing. And unfortunately they uh. just they just did the two years in Secaucus and the World Pet Association uh, decided that, you know, they, they didn't want to continue it, and they are actually going to put a little bit more emphasis on uh, America's Pet Family Expo in Southern California. So no more uh, aquatic experience, and Zach has actually moved on to work for uh, Sarah North America.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sarah's a very good um, company too, a German company. Yeah, you know, that's a real shame, because I think when you lump the aquarium hobby in with pets, you know, they're really not pets. You know, I know some people get an affection towards a goldfish or a koi or maybe an old big cichlid, but it's really a hobby of applied scientists as well as artists, right? It's some people who like to breed fish, some people who like to do the art, create the aquascaping, um, rather than pet keeping. So that, I think, is a misstep on the World Pet Association, but hopefully maybe the Florida Fish Farm Association will bring this back someday.
0: Yeah, hopefully. And if there is actually a newer, um, a little bit of a newer event that sprung up uh, when they when the Aquatic Experience left Chicago. So Aquashella, uh, a couple good friends of mine uh, started Aquashella in Chicago. They also have it in Dallas. And so right. it's, it's a little bit more of a youthful take. Um, it's not, more of a
1: marine hobby though, right?
0: It's actually, they try to really split it down the middle. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there's inherently... I think inherently there is a little bit more of the culture from the saltwater side of things. Yeah. But they're doing their best to try to have freshwater represented as much as possible. They yeah. Had, they had aquascaping competitions. They've had uh, right flower horns and bettas, and so it's it, it will be very interesting to see where that goes. Unfortunately, with everything going on right now, that's actually being pushed from I think July into You're October right, right now. Uh, and, both-
1: yeah, and 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 you know, people also don't realize there there has long been aquarium weekend events going on even before these two events happen. You know, the, uh, the Keystone Clash in Pennsylvania, the Northeast Council Convention every spring, the, all the specialty clubs, the Cichlid, the American Cichlid, the American Library, they all have special weekend events. The Great Lakes in the Midwest always have events. So th- there are always these weekend events that generally have speakers, auctions, and fish shows that people can go to. Um, And I think just there's just a lack of knowledge about them, Um, you know, and, you know, sometimes some of the YouTube channels and some of I think some of the other people who do things don't know about these other events because the organized side of the hobby has been around for over 100 years, but we've never done a good job of letting people know that we
0: exist. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I was, um, you know, while you're saying that, that that's one of the yeah. things where, where like Aquashella, they've done a really good job. They got on a couple of uh, morning talk shows. So they were on a morning Dallas right. show, they were on a morning Chicago show. And, you know, so that way the public gets to know them. But to exactly to your point, I don't think the fish nerds, the fish clubs uh, have that same acumen when it comes to, to marketing and no. reaching the public.
1: No, I, I mean, one of my specialties in the organized hobby is is how to market uh, fish club events. But real hardcore freshwater fish hobbyists, I don't think that's in their core of a personality. But if you're a real freshwater hobbyist, um, that's the places to go. You know, the convention of the Aquatic Gardeners Association, the Keystone Clash, the NEC convention, any of the various shows and events that go on throughout the Midwest. That's really where you get the real hardcore freshwater people breeding fish. That's where you're going to acquire lots of rare fish because they always have an auction, multiple auctions. They have vendors. Um, and, you know, it doesn't take much more than a, a Google search to really uh, find these events. Um, the NEC convention, which has been around for over 40 years, has also been uh, canceled, unfortunately. That takes place every April in uh, Connecticut. You know, brings hobbyists from all over the U.S. and uh, Canada. Um, Keystone Clash will be in September in Pennsylvania. That's created by three clubs. Um, They, you know, right now that hasn't been canceled, so that's another place to look. But there are opportunities there. And I I always tell all of the people who are listening to your uh, podcast, try to join a live fish club Um, because there's nothing like – both the fellowship you get with other hobbyists and being able to acquire a lot of rare species and the knowledge from the people in those clubs. Uh, I just formed my own club recently. It's been a lifelong dream. There's a lot of ways to form your own club as well. Um, but it's such an advantage over just doing social media. Um, to really meet people and and get the livestock and plants that you really want to see.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm a huge huge proponent of uh, the fish club scene. Right now, family commitments make it a little difficult for me to attend. Oh my, yeah, my, my, sure. Yeah, they make it difficult for me to attend my Greater Seattle Aquarium Society meetings. But it, it that's is that's a really great club. Yeah. Have you had a chance to come out and
1: speak? No, I know several people in that club, and we got to get you out. Years. Oh, be happy to! I've always liked to visit the uh, Pacific Northwest. Um, I've known several people in that club. That that club has a long, long uh, history uh, serving the hobby. So yeah,
0: yeah. I've got a. Uh, I've got the ear of the. Um speaker chair and you know i've i've uh I, I like to i like to say i've got a couple notches on my belt of past podcast guests that we've actually um oh, okay. through, through my recommendation actually we've gotten them up to the uh the club to speak so uh and and, and i mean if you're willing to travel so our mutual friend joe ferdenzi i'm like joe you should come out and joe's like no i don't fly <laughs> so uh, might be, hard, fly. Might be yeah. hard to get joe across the country but ted if you're interested man you've got uh you know the the speaker lineup that you have so i think what's really fun is when i do speaker research um Especially if they've ever spoken or are associated with the NEC, the NEC Speaker Profile page lists the various talks that they give. Yeah. and your talks all sound very, very interesting. From sword swordtails, which we'll dive in today, but your more recent uh, passion of water gardening and you know these aquatic container mm-hmm. ponds and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I would I'll definitely talk with the Speaker Chair, and once all of this you know self quarantine and we get a handle on COVID nineteen in this country and we, we can kind of return back to normalcy, you know definitely make sure that Ted Kaletti that your name is high up on that list of people we can bring out
1: oh great thanks
0: yeah so let's talk let's dive into the origin section of who dr. Ted Coletti is and how did how did you get your start in this hobby with with tropical fish
1: well um I think I really got my start um, right after college um, because um, what happened was um I had an apartment um we had an aquarium growing up is as, as a child that I always remembered and just started to, you know, want to, want to get a tank for the apartment. And what happens with a lot of us hobbyists that led to more tanks and more tanks and more tanks. And then, you know, uh, eventually, um, more tanks than I really should be allowed to have, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, so to speak. So, um, uh, that was in the early to mid 1980s,
0: And what Um, species did you find yourself kind of gravitating towards? Were you just And I'm sharing
1: my screen with you now too, by mm -hmm. the way. I don't know whether you see that there. This is Um, a
0: this is a first for the podcast. We actually have so so Dr. Ted, you are uh, we are doing a, a visual, you know, kind of FaceTime, if you will, through StreamYards, and you're gonna share your screen. We're gonna walk through this. And so I'm gonna do my best to make sure that we are providing some good descriptions of what we're seeing right, right. now. <laughs> Which so this is gonna be a first in like 76 episodes. I've never done this. So
1: sure. Well, I mean, so so I'm I mean, you know, I've 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 kind kind of evolved my hobby over the years. To lots of different things you know so you know in the in the 90s i started doing a uh, biotope aquariums i was just a biotope aquarium nut i would you know that was you know pre-internet so i would have to write academics and explorers and look at their journal articles and ask for photos um, look through old aquarium books because you know before there was youtube the book and magazine were kind of the Influencers back oh, yeah. then, you know, pet—that's where everyone got all their information. So you got pictures of some, what ifs and there were a few books on that too. So I, I would do things like take uh, tree trunks and you know put them in an aquarium to try to simulate an Amazon tank. So I was doing a lot of aquascaping and live planting back then. That was during the old Compuserve uh, fishnet days, the early days of the internet. Then I moved on to live bearers in the late '90s, for about twenty years or so, but. During that time, ever since the late 90s, I've been bringing my fish outside for the summer. I really tear down my whole fish room. So right now I'm showing you a picture of uh, what my fish room looks like um, and the other tanks that are in my house. And I, I put the fish outside because I find they're easier to breed. There's a lot of live foods available. Um, Always, always had an interest in the history of the hobby, too. So around 2002, I formed the Aquarium Hobby Historical Society of America. And that's where we've had a lot of the legends in the hobby who, fortunately, were still with us, you know, uh, communicate first on Yahoo Groups, and now we're on Facebook and Groups.io just to try to record an accurate history of what the hobby is, because there's a lot of misconceptions, you know, and how did this hobby evolve to where we are now? And it's a really interesting story about some of the personalities and how certain fish like swordtails came into the hobby. So I'm pretty eclectic. And like you said, involved in the fish club scenes all around the, uh, all around the uh, country and just formed my own club last May here in the Northwest part of New Jersey.
0: There's a lot to unpack there. What would you say? So I guess the image first. Let's we can talk about the image that we were looking at, and just to let people know, like your uh, the fish room picture that you were showing me, um, very aesthetically pleasing. Many of your tanks appear to be fully planted with driftwood. Um, just look like really awesome, you know, for lack of a better word, like a display tank, like a main living room, right. front room kind of display tank. Very very beautiful. Um, Let's see, what else do you have? Go so you've got a, a rack off to one wall, looks like four tiers. Yeah, it looks really mm-hmm. cool. And so, right here, we're looking at about what four, 16, 17, 18, like maybe 19 tanks in this tank or in this picture.
1: Yeah, yeah, about, about 20 tanks in this little uh man cave, some show tanks upstairs, and then nearly everything goes outside in the summer, um, you know, to about uh you know, uh, 24 to 36 uh, tub ponds,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, where I do, you know, a lot of my fish breeding.
0: Mm -hmm. And what does that process look like for you? I know the main meat and potatoes of this talk today is going to be on swordtails, but when you do your uh, move, you know, winter's passing, it's starting to warm up, springtime, how long does it take you to take those twenty, the inhabitants of maybe all 20 tanks or just some of the tanks and move them and transition them to outside?
1: Um, I do it, you know, I set up the tubs, um, you know, early, right. Um, usually around, uh, April, you know, and I put out a lot of the plants. So in April, the plants start to go out and then the fish start going out where I am. I'm here in zone six in around June. Mm -hmm. And, um, so the fish then will all, will all go out. The tub is already set up. The fish will stay out there till about October 1st, and then I'll bring them inside and uh, bring them in the fish room and acclimate them slowly. Um, usually yeah. there's a lot of fry. I usually do a lot of my egg scatterer breeding um, outdoors, uh, you know, just because it's easier. And m- there's a lot of cues with mother nature um, on t- to let fish breed and do well. Just the size of the fish, the colors, their health is just amazing when you put your fish outside. Um, and I recommend anyone who has even a sunny window or a patio or even a backyard, uh, consider doing it.
0: And then the other, the other picture we're looking at right now, uh, looks like on your deck or at least one of the decks to your home, we've got uh, three, what are they about 25, 30 gallon, uh, round tubs, like fully planted up lilies. And, uh, what other plants would we be looking at? I mean, I mean like fully stocked. I, I, there's probably only maybe 5% of that entire surface area is actually visible water. Right. Very beautiful looking.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I I would say that that's, that, that's, that's true. You know, usually have a water lily somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, you have vegetative filters. I don't use any filters except, uh, except, uh, live, uh, plants, irises, cattails. Um, you know, they filter the water they form a little feeding ground for the fish, so it's it's a it's as natural a setting as you can do.
0: And are you aerating? Um, are you aerating these guys? No, no, okay.
1: absolutely not. No, okay. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, my book, the Tub Pond Handbook, um, goes into, you know, with 150 pages and all these photos, how to how to choose a tub that's appropriate for your fish. Most importantly, where to where to put the tub or the uh, container pond in terms of sun and uh, temperature, the type of plants that you need to use and uh, things like that. But swordtails, which is the topic today, do f- and and uh, platys, the whole uh, uh genus, does great outside because they're Central American fish. They can take extremely cold temperatures, much colder than in the fish room. The fish seem to adjust to the changing temperatures outside better than they do in your aquarium, which is more of a laboratory type of deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you an example, Randy. I pulled in red sore tails out of a uh, out of a pond in my backyard last year. The pond was in, the temperature was in the 40s. Oh,
0: wow. Now,
1: that was, that was the absolute coldest that they could possibly go and they looked a little worse for wear when I pulled them out. I pulled them out late because they were frying there, and they grow so fast outdoors I missed them when I pulled all the fish out uh, a month earlier. But fish do extremely hardy, and the swordtails and platys in particular are fairly, very hardy fish.
0: Are you getting enough you know, insects you know, visiting these ponds, going into the water for fish to eat that you're not supplementing oh, with yeah. additional? So are you even feeding any additional fish food?
1: I do feed additional fish food okay. because I want the fish to breed and do well. Mm-hmm. Um, what I, um, But, you know, the neat thing is if I go on vacation, if you're away for two weeks, your fish will be fine. You don't have to feed
0: them. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the purpose of feeding them is to get them robust enough to breed and to have enough food for the fry. And you, your fish just do better with a more balanced diet. But it's really, it's supplemented by all the live algaes, the live microorganisms, the daphnia, the mosquito larvae, other insect larvae, and they're in various sizes, right? So when your fish hatch out, there's microscopic food for them to eat, but as they grow, there's larger foods too. So that's another benefit of putting your fish outside.
0: What I what I see here, and what what the parallel that I'm drawing right now is, so for anybody that um, you know wants to expand their fish collection, wants to do ponds outside, this is probably the easiest best way to get your significant other who may not want you to expand outside of the house or outside of your fish room because what you have set up here is absolutely beautiful like this this looks like you would pay you know your boutique high-end nursery to come to your home and set up these tubs like all, all all three that you had in the image and the one that we're focusing on now these are gorgeous the fact that you even have fish in there is just like even more icing on the cake these things are awesome
1: yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, there, there's an old saying from Greg uh, Speaker, who was sort of the water gardener plant guru uh, before he unfortunately passed away suddenly about 15 years ago. He said, water gardening is gardening for the gardening impaired. You can't, you, you cannot fail. And it's, in many ways, that's, that's really true. I'm planting most of my plants and just playing a, uh, uh, pea gravel with uh, mesh uh, baskets. Um, you know, the water that the roots grow out of the mesh basket, they clean the water. Um, unlike a house plant, you don't you can't underwater it, you can't overwater it, you just got to keep it a little moist. Um, it's fairly easy gardening to do. Um, and there's a lot of vendors both online and also nurseries probably within a driving distance of you that will sell you uh pond plants. So my book the uh, tub pond handbook um which is available on Amazon, you know, goes into how to select your plants, what plants are best, how to do some of the aquascaping. Um but it's fairly easy uh to do and you can do it in a in a really small space. I like it better than a dug in pond um Randy because with a dug in pond I can't get up close, right? I can't get up close and see the fishes. Mm -hmm. I can't smell the water lilies. I can't taste the nectar. I can't see the insects. I can't get a close look. In-ground ponds are nice. They're beautiful, but they're to be appreciated from afar. And that's why we keep large fish like goldfish and koi. You keep tropical fish outside in a tub pond, you can get right up close and see behavior you won't see in your aquarium. Because remember, your fish, when you see them behave in an aquarium, they're behaving because they see you. They think they're gonna be fed. So you never really see, unless you put, and I recommend people do this, a hidden camera on your fish tank and observe them, you will never see their true behavior. But when you're outside, you're getting a bird's eye view and you get a different impression of them because they can't sense that you're there, right? The eyes are on the sides of their heads.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it's, it's, it's just a, it's just a neat thing to do. Yeah. And I mean, it's the thing I look forward to most in my uh, hobby.
0: Yeah. I mean, this, I actually have one of these tubs that's empty right now on the side of the house, like the perfect, perfect <laughs> size, uh, plastic 25 ish gallon tub that uh, I, I think some guppies in my fish room are probably going to have to take a little trip out, uh, out in one of these, when, uh, when it starts to warm up. So on that note, and I'm sure your book covers this. And so I will have links, uh, Amazon links to your book. Um, I definitely appreciate you coming on. I want to make sure that anybody listening to this, that's interested in water gardening and, and taking their fish from their fish room out, uh, for the spring and summertime season, um, can definitely have that link to go to. But is there, is there like a rule of thumb, right? As far as, you know, depending on where you live in the country, um, What is, like, the low or high temperature average that we're looking for to kind of trigger to know, like, okay, your lows don't get any lower than 50, boom, you can go ahead and start? Or,
1: Well, really, I mean, the most important thing is that the temperature, you have, don't go by air temperatures. Like, if you hear the uh, forecast, they get a floating thermometer and check your water temps. A tub that is set up in the sun will really warm up even higher than the air temps, right? So when you get a weather forecast, most people don't realize that temperature is the is the temperature, the high temperature of that day in the shade. Right. Hmm. In the sun, the, for, the 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 average daily high is much higher. And that's what's gonna be hitting your water and warming it up. So a floating thermometer. What you want to look for is you want to have the water in your aquarium or your fish room be close to the temperature outside. That's when you put the fish out. So I don't keep my fish room or my tanks really warm. I keep my fish in my tanks, unless I want to breed my fish, I keep them in the low 70s because my fish live longer. There's less chance of disease, especially with some of the flexibacterias, And so I keep them in the low 70s. And when my tubs hit that low 70, and I know it's going to be that way for a couple of days, that's when I put the fish out. So where I am in zone six, which is the planting zone, if, if you can go to the U.S. Department of Agriculture on and you will see where your zone is. You know, New Jersey, parts of the Midwest, we're zone six. For me, that's around Labor Day is when I drain my tubs after I've set them up a month before. I put in new water. Um, and I will add fish in early June. That generally works for me. But again, there's some fish that like it colder. platies and swordtails, paradise fish, most barbs. Um, you know, you can keep them in your aquarium in the low 60s. They're fine. And that's when I'll know to put them outside. Once they're outside, they adjust to uh, temperature changes great. So they can stay out long. It's that you just want to make sure when you put them out, your temperatures are somewhat similar.
0: Hmm, no, that's good. That's good advice, yeah. and of course, all of this is probably very, very well detailed in the book. That could walk a complete noob like me through the process and be successful uh, of transitioning fish, getting the right species of plants, um, positioning where you're going to put this thing. So, right, yeah, that that's good stuff. And so, on the note of uh, swordtails, let's let's jump into that meat and potatoes topic. Sure. And so, um, you're saying so in the '90s, you got yourself into live bears, right? Right, okay. correct. I guess, so the first question would be, what what got you into live bears, first off?
1: Well, I mean, I was, you know, I've, 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 when I was a child, we always had a tank with, you know, mollies and platies and, and, and angel fish and other things. But my first tank I ever got on my own, like, you know, when I was, just started uh, college, I bought a bunch of, I think they were platies, which are my favorite fish just for uh, sentimental reasons. And woke up one morning, came out, you see all the babies in the tank, you know, you never really forget that. And so, um, you know, platies and swordtails genetically are extremely interesting animals. They're a little more recently evolved than some of the other freshwater fish species we keep. They're mostly seen as bread and butter fish. Um, you know fish that you know everyone knows that they're easy to keep. You start with, but they're actually quite interested in their behavior and their evolution, and they've become real popular starting around 2000 when uh, my friend Rusty Wessel um, of the American Cichlid Association started bringing them back from Mexico and bringing back some really fabulous species we haven't seen in a very long time, such as the Montezuma swordtail. Um, and that really kicked off a really big, I think, almost gold rush with people wanting to uh, keep these fish. Um, there's a whole stock center down in uh, Texas called the Sophophorus uh, uh, Genetic Stock Center. They've been using these fish for cancer research since the early 1930s. They keep almost every known species. Um, I've gotten some animals from there and uh, distributed them out um, in the early O's. So um, there's just a lot of interest about these fish and a, and a lot more things to like about them than just uh, bread and butter fish, Randy. Is,
0: is there any reason why they haven't split that genus? Why both a platy and a sword and a sword tail are both in the same oh, genus? Yeah. And you've got such a significant, you know, uh, uh, um, physical difference with a sword tail versus the platy.
1: Well, Right now, your viewers, to let you know, I'm showing Randy a map of where the platies and swordtails come from, which is essentially Mexico, Guatemala, uh, Honduras,
0: all, and all along the Atlantic it. and Gulf uh, portion. For right, the most part. Right, right, yeah. all the
1: Atlantic Gulf, and there's platies and swordtails within this whole range. Right, so geographically, they're not really separated. Mm-hmm. The platies tend to stay more in the banky areas where there's a lot of brush the swordtails are more in open water but the reason is is because they will readily interbreed and the sword itself is a genetic part of this genus over evolution these species have lost and regained a swordtail. interesting to the point where if there, there was a study done they 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 pasted a cardboard sword onto a male platy fish and the females preferred that platy male to the regular platy males so the sword has just this instinctual um characteristic that the females enjoy so size does matter guys it seems at least with <laughs> plies and sword tails um so and genetically they're not really that different i mean um, you can see here, I'm showing you now just where the platys and swordtails range. So if they do it, they've done so much DNA analysis on these fish, they can put them in clusters, right? They're biochemical clusters, what their DNA looks like. And um, if you see here, you know, you see these clusters of fish. And some are swordtails, and some look like platies, and they're in similar clusters, you
0: know? So we just happened to this this snapshot in time of this last, let's say, 200 years that man has been interested in the, the platies and swordtails, and we start looking at them in depth— um, it's just, a, it's just a factor of time that these particular species have a sword to them, mm-hmm. where if we fast-forwarded yes. 500 years, the ones with swords may have lost them, and the platies without may have gained a sword tail.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we've, you know, we think these fish evolved about a million years ago, mm-hmm. is the current thinking, um, but they think they've lost and regained their sword over time. There's one fish in particular here um, called, uh, uh Clementiae and Zephofer's Clemenciae for all intents and purposes looks, looks like a sword tail. And it's up on your screen now. Uh, Randy, it has a sword. It has the stripes on the side of the body. So we thought this evolved from a regular sword tail. What we found out was what Cl- Zephofer's Clementiae really is, it is a natural hybrid between a platy fish, an ancient platy fish, and an ancient Helleria so- uh, swordtail. Because when you do the genetics, it doesn't fall into the swordtail class. Its mother was a was a uh, platy, and wow. they know that because if you do the mitochondria DNA, that's always inherited uh, uh, from the mother. Wow. So looks can be, uh, deceiving. In fact, all of the color varieties of platys and swordtails that are in the pet shops now. And when you and I were both kids for the past 100 years, they're all hybrids. You cannot go to a pet shop and buy a platy and a swordtail and say that that's a platy, Zephophorus uh, um, maculatus or zephyphoros helleri. They've all been purposely interbred for different colors and finages and shapes, and then morphed into an idealized version of what a platy should look like. You know, that little squat little fish
0: mm-hmm.
1: or an idealized version of what a sore tailed look like. Um, but intense there, you, you anytime you buy a platy or sword tail in retail, consider that to be a hybrid fish mm. between any one of four different species. Maculatus, variatus, Hellerii, Zephidium is probably in there from back in the 50s. Um, so again, looks can be uh, deceiving.
0: You know, what's actually really cool about you pulling up this uh, clemencia, unless I'm, I'm butchering that name, uh, you know, I like to do some prep before every interview. Right. And I actually read your article from uh, TF uh, TFH from March 2007, just talking about uh, the clemencia contradiction. Has this orphan sword tail finally found a home? And that was actually really fun. That was a very fun read and uh, about how yeah. that, that's a challenging fish for some, but you had found uh, some some success with that fish.
1: Yeah, no, I mean— they're not really challenging in the sense of keeping. I think whenever you keep wild fish, there's gonna be an additional challenge. Um, But, um, you know, uh, whenever you keep wild fish, there will probably be some type of challenge, but it's more the challenge in, um, I think, just trying to understand some of their basic uh, habitat and biology. Um, you know, clean water conditions, moderately hard water, a little alkaline pH will suit most species well. Um, you know, some species are a little more delicate than others, but it's really species-specific.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, not to diverge too far off of this topic, but then like the mollies, uh, or do mo- mollies fall under a different genus then? Yeah, okay.
1: mollies are under the uh, Paciliae genus. A lot of people think they should be split out back to uh, Molinesnia mm. um, because they're in the same genus as, um, you know, uh, standard guppies. Right, right. And they really don't interbreed well. But, you know, the, the fish don't gain as much interest, I think, as the cichlids. So the ichthyological uh, taxonomist trend towards splitting has not really reached the mollies yet. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, they are a uh, Piscillia live bearers, which means just like platys and swords, um, the female can get pregnant one time and give birth every 30 days for the next seven months. Um, you know, that's what makes the platys and swordtails and all the Piscillia fish highly evolved animals. We think of them as simple, but just, just think of the evolutionary and... Um, habitat advantage of being able to um, you know further your species by just becoming inseminated one time
0: so to to the best and
1: you know I'm sorry yeah and you, you know that female during a storm could be washed into another pond over the eons and get isolated and form a whole new species
0: to the be- to the best of your understanding what is the 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 chemical biological process going on where a female is able to hold on to uh a sperm for so long like how how is she able to to preserve that and is it is is well, she keeping it in the in the in the male sperm form or is she actually just it, fertilizing eggs, but then holding on to those in some manner that, um, you know, they're obviously not spoiling and that she can choose to develop them, uh, when she sees fit. Like how, how is that, how is that developing inside?
1: Well, <coughs> um, excuse me. Yeah, well, there's two different types of bearing right? There's some libraries and the facility are such, they're really egg laying fish, but they're laying their eggs inside of the female's womb. There is some evidence, and there's more growing evidence, that those developing um, embryos do get some nourishment from the mother in some way, but in, in mostly they are independently um, laid eggs, developing inside of the mother, and they uh, hatch out. Um, how? What happens is the male sperm is in packets. And these sperm packets get stored inside of the uh, uterus. And they can break open and inseminate the female over up to a seven-month uh, period. And so they're giving birth every 30 days. So guppies, mollies, platy, swordtails Now, that's different than the gudeid live-bearers or the half-beaks or the anableps, 4 fish, which literally have umbilical cords.
0: Right, right.
1: So... Those are actually, you know, nurturing their young and they they give birth to fewer fry, but they're really huge. Mm -hmm. They're large animals. Whereas, you know, one of the records is a Pellerii swordtail gave birth to 172 fry once. Wow. I mean, that's just, you know, because there's just so many eggs there and they can get a very large size. Um, But they give birth to a lot because the fish are small. They do get eaten a few survive in the wild and they eventually, uh, grow up to be
0: adults themselves. Hmm. It's crazy that depending on where the fish is and the, and, and the particular fish itself, that the evolutionary path would be instead of scattering eggs or, um, you know, putting them on a surface and, and guarding them, that it would just be internal, uh, internal prolonged gestation, I guess. And, and then to, to actually right. birth yeah. live fish. Like it seems like, it's just crazy how some fish take one path and this fish took a completely different path. Correct. And so right now Absolutely we're watching, correct. that was a video or I guess we were going to watch a video of, uh, yeah, the birthing At, process. It's
1: correct. So there's a, you can see that they uh, they, uh, give birth to the fish. You can see one coming out of the womb there. Um, there's no, uh, parental care, of course. And some fish are more cannibalistic than others, right? You might get, um, you might get a particular female swordtail who gets a tasting for her fry. What a lot of the professional breeders do when that happens, they will not work with that female anymore. Mm. You have other females who really kind of ignore their fry, so it's important to keep the female well, well, um, well-fed. Um, um, usually, when you start to see a squaring off of the bottom of the female, that's a Generally, a sign birth is imminent. Um, that's an old sign that works with some fish, not with others. And um, you know, usually want to isolate that fish in a heavily planted tank so you know the fry can actually be
0: saved. So, so other than being the extra work, um, if there's a female that wants to prey on her young, is it is it also they don't want to work with that female because that could be a behavior that gets passed along and they just want to stop? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, oh, interesting.
1: And, you know, you know, these are for people who work with more of the fancy varieties of uh, swordtails. You know, like these new red, um, well, not new anymore, the red alphas. Um, what you're seeing here is a, not a doctored photo. So if any of your viewers want to go on Google and type in red alpha swordtail, they'll see what I'm speaking about. These are really vibrant type of swordtails that are all the rage now for the past 10, uh, 15 years. Hmm. Um, came out of Germany originally. Um,
0: yeah, it's like outlined, and, and the see- fins are a very bright red, but then the body, yeah. like the, the side body profile from this image looks very black, very dark, a lot of contrast between the black and the red. Very cool fish. Right.
1: And, and again, and, and this is a completely undoctored photo. So, you know, if you type in red alpha swordtail, um, you'll see what some of these actually look like.
0: No, this is fun. I'm along for the ride watching the slides. And then what else would you like to touch on? What else is a, is a good point to, to bring up on the swordtails?
1: Well, you know, I think one of the problems is it's, it's very hard to find swordtails now, right? Um, most of the big box stores, the Petsco and the Petco and the PetSmart, they focus more on platyfish and variatus, which is the variatus platy is, um, it has, it's the fish you see up here in the right corner. You know, it, it, it has a more elongated body than a regular maculatus type platy, but not as long as a standard sore tail. Again, most of them near the pet shops are nearly all hybrid fish. Uh, the pet shops tend to focus on those types of platys. That you, it's hard to find good sore tails unless you go to an independent store or if you go to a fish club. Most people have not seen what a really good sore tail looks like with a long type of sword in the extreme would be the montezuma sword tail mm-hmm. which uh, unfortunately in the hobby a lot of fish are being sold as montezuma sword tails when they're really not um they're um really Hillary rei sword tails um but again, you know, so if you really want to work with swordtails, what you need is a, a somewhat larger tank. These fish can get a little big. The males do fight with each other. They Once they start getting a sword, it, there's sort of an aggressive instinct that you even don't see with some of the platys, the vari- the variatus platys you do. It really comes down to this northern mountain swordtails. And, and Mexico is kind of a split ecology, right? You have this... Thing called the trans mexican volcanic belt that runs through the middle of the uh country and that's the north of that you get these you know swordtails that tend to be a little more aggressive you get the montezumas um you get some of the, you get the variatus platys. South of that, you get the maculatus platys. and the ones in the north tend to have these very you know dramatic swords. But I don't think most people have really seen what a good swordtail looks like. Well, so, the, the image that um,
0: you were just showing, I mean, to talk about a good sword, I mean that fish is maybe two to three inches. It's it, it's body itself, and then once you factor in that sword coming down at a forty-five degree angle, that that thing is at least two x right. the body size. It, it is. You would almost think that, from an evolutionary standpoint, that that would somehow make it more susceptible to predation, <laughs> which I guess the, the ladies like it, but it's like, man, you got this giant trail of, you know, a predators. Well, gonna... <laughs> yeah, right. So, so,
1: right. So, so, there's a uh, trade-off, right? right? It attracts females more to perpetuate your species. It does give you a level of speed. Um, it does also even help the male to even swim backwards sometimes huh. to inseminate a female but it gets you so big that you're easy to be caught right so i think a lot of evolutionary biologists feel the reason why the sword gets lost over time and there's still a big debate on why that happens is possibly because of the number of predators that are uh, in the environment right you want to get a shorter body in order to survive Um, also the thing is uh, remember a smaller body makes it easier to just strike and dart and impregnate a female.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the longer sword, you know, is uh, a little more effort. So sometimes those small sword genes can be perpetuated, and eventually, you know, you know, you get a swordless species, you know, sort of like a platyfish.
0: So you so do. There's, you
1: know, lots of theories about
0: that. So you do see the sneaker males then during a mating courtship between a long yeah. sword male and a female that says, "Oh, I like that," and then all of a sudden, sneaker male comes in and uh and does his business
1: right right and then you know you will see that with uh zephaphorus uh um nigrensis for example zephaphorus nigrensis has four different types of males of different sizes and different uh colors um now they enjoy the same habitat as another species of sword tail so how come they don't interbreed what's real they found interesting about this fish is that its sword and its scales reflect uv light in a way that can only be picked up by the female Hmm. so they're able to distinguish their species that way and that adds a level of attraction um crazy the other thing about these fish that are real interesting, and that has to do with this, which is the um, what was described in the early 70s as the leap fish uh, phenomenon. If you have a variatus platy or a Montezuma swordtail, any of the more wild types fish, you will see this behavior. But you'll see it even in a, a tank of you know fancy soretails koi tails, or whatever. What happens is, and I'm just showing a picture right now uh, to you, Randy, you, you know, the Variatus platy is a fish where the males are more colorful than the uh, females. It's you know one of the few you know, one of the few species within the zephophorus genus, which is about 20, 22 species, where the males are really the colorful ones. But what happens, you find out, is that. Many males will stealth themselves as females before their bodies get big enough to turn into males. So they are males, but they're stealthing themselves. They'll come with a gravid spot. This fish on the left that I'm showing Randy right now is actually a male fish. This is what this fish looked like a month later.
0: Oh, wow. All colored and up and what, beautiful, yeah.
1: All, all colored. It looks just like a male variatus. And now they're sparring with each other. But before... That fish could not do that. It was not ready to take on that fish. Hmm. So that's called the leap fish uh, phenomenon. I can't tell you how many times people have emailed me and say, Ted, I've got a, bought a bunch of Montezuma sore tails. They're all females. And I'm like, wait, because in, in an aquarium situation, you could wait almost two years before they, their maleness sort of appears. Now, back in the old days, they used to say that sore tails change sexes. They really don't change sex in the sense that they're really more late-developing males and early-developing males. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that in your aquarium, um, especially if it's a small aquarium.
0: Is that that the same behavior as what we see with pistagrammas? So a lot of times when you're, you know, in, the, in a retail store setting, when somebody specifically requests a male and a female, it's usually very easy to find that one distinctive male in a group. Uh, but then that female tends to be a bit more difficult because of the sneaker male kind of effect. Is that is that kind of the same thing in practice here? Well,
1: no, because um, the males don't become, in terms of the leapfish phenomenon, the males don't become sneaker males. They actually look like females. Hmm. So they they can't breed with the existing males. There right. are some species of swordtails, like the nigrences, which do develop sneaker males as well as full size males, and they will breed uh, with the females. Um, so there are some species that do do that. But oh, most of the species okay.
0: don't. Okay, I see yeah. what you're saying. Gotcha. So th-
1: this this is this is more of of leaping going from looking like a female to a male very quickly gotcha once your body size is actually large enough and it's basically a way because i can i can tell you that i've had a 90 gallon tank which is a large tank fully planted with just varietus platys i could only put one male in that tank if i put any other male in that tank he would kill him hmm So they get very, very aggressive and sore tails will too. They will get very, very aggressive. So one way to counter that aggression is to get your body size big enough, stealth yourself as a male. Don't let out the pheromones and then turn into a male within like a couple of weeks. And then you'll be able to take on that other fish. Yeah, and that's that, called the leaf fish phenomenon,
0: and that's just one of those kind of concepts. When we when we think about species in general, like you would associate that aggression so much with with cichlids in general. But when it comes to like a live bear, you know, most people I would say, oh no, live bears are super peaceful. But you know, your experience and the experience of others that that know these fish know that that's counter.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it it's 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 more it's more Interspecies specific aggression mm-hmm. rather than intraspecific, right? So um mm-hmm. so whereas the cichlids will take on other fish mm-hmm. to guard their eggs and stuff like that and other species and other animals. It's this is more competition among the males.
0: Gotcha. And so now we're seeing a, a slide of sex determination.
1: Yeah, so one of the thing that makes the simple platyfish so unique you know, with most fish, you have, you know, like humans, you have X and Y uh, chromosomes to determine your uh, sex, right? If if you're an XX, you're a female. If you're an XY, you're a male. But with platies, you can get three different types of females and two different kinds of males because they have X, Y, and W. So you have... So, it's a weird concept to think, well, you're either male or female. Well, no, with the platys, you're more um, fluid, which is a concept we all know now in our culture.
0: So, what is and this? Is, you, so, what's you the. Have, oh, I'm sorry.
1: No, no, no. It's just saying that you have genetically, you have WY, WX, and XX. They're all female, but there are three different kinds of females. And with males, you have XY or YY. Y.
0: So so let's let's develop that with the males. Two different so, kinds of males. You, so and what's a yy I mean, male? Like how would you how would you best describe the difference between an xy male and a yy male? Well, or is it just at that chromosome level? Like when you actually? Yeah, it's it's
1: how this all came about is when they're very hard to work with platys and swordtails to fix a color pattern or to fix a finnage pattern, and what they find is that. Um depending on the type, which of the three types of females and two types of males you cross, that color pattern might not get fixed or not. Right. So, you know, in the fish business, it's important that if I want to get a red platy with an orange dorsal, I want it always to produce that fish. And platys, it's very hard for that to happen because there's so much genetic variability. Um, so often we know that there's certain color and shape and pigment and finage characteristics associated with the type of male or female that uh that you are sometimes if you'll cross a, all a certain phenotype male and female you may get all you may get all females mm. you know so it they're very hard fish to work with um much harder to work with than fancy guppies in terms of you getting certain uh uh color patterns right um And, you know, people have been working on these fish for colors ever since they found out that platys and swordtails can interbreed in the early part of the uh, 20th century. So, you know, there have been, when the hobby first really took off, it used to be called the toy fish craze back in the 1920s. The platys, swordtails, and the mollies, they were like the fish. There was always new color varieties coming out all the time. Everyone was trying to make their own uh, color variety. It wasn't really until the 1950s we were able to get a solid color fish. Before then, it was always multicolored fish because of this, you know, these um, genetic uh, variabilities that make it really hard to fix a certain pattern.
0: And then in your personal experience breeding these fish, are 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 you just breeding to maintain healthy stock, or if you would see a male, you know, or a female developing a certain physical trait that you really liked, how much would you try to focus on that, you know, on the on the fact that there is that extra chromosome element that would make fixing that that much more difficult, or is that or is that just something that in your personal experience you haven't you haven't concerned yourself too much with that.
1: Well, I mean, I'm not an expert um, platy and sword tail breeder. The ones that are really know their uh, genetics, right? Mm-hmm. They know what the color red does. For example, the red alpha, which we spoke about before, you know, you, you can't breed two red alphas uh, together to get a red alpha. You have to breed a red alpha to a regular red um, sword tail to get the red alpha uh, type of effect. That strain hasn't been fixed yet. So um, it really depends upon the breeders, the people who do this really, they, you know, and, but, you know, I I don't want to discourage people here, even at home, you know, you can, you can try crossing a couple of fish, different platies to see what you get. The problem is, is that when you get a female platy or sword tail, they're all going to be, uh, they're already going to be uh, impregnated. So trying to get a virgin female to kind of work with is what you really want to shoot for. So, um, if you find a strain that you like and you say, you know, I want to try to cross this red fish with this striped fish, you know, let that red fish, you know, give birth, try to isolate the females as soon as you see them and then work with those fish.
0: For basically like a seventh month kind of, you know, reproductive quarantine, right?
1: Well, no, I mean, well, either that or just take the first batch that she lays and work with those fish. Mm, okay. Because they'll be, you know, ready if you feed them well with a lot of live or frozen foods, you know, they'll be ready to spawn in like three months.
0: Or assuming that she wasn't mixed with a different variety before you came into possession.
1: Right. Okay. Which is why, you know, you know, looking to find people really breed these fish well, mm-hmm. Aquabid, is one site online that can ship you fish from breeders and there are breeders who sell their fish online and that that's that's a way to guarantee i think to get a a a better a better stock um you know the one thing when you work with these fish if you do make a crossing you have to be careful with is the spotted pattern because you know a lot of these fish like for example the wagtail platy which is a common Type of platy or a wagtail uh, swordtail. If you cross uh, a fish that has these black, big black markings, like a totally black tail or a black dorsal, with a swordtail of pie that does not have those, um, a lot of those fish might develop a cancer. In other words, they don't have the regulatory gene to keep that black from spreading over the whole body. Huh. And this is why these fish became so popular back in the 30s as the first animal model for uh, cancer to prove that cancer can be inherited. You know, most of us think cancer is just something you get because of your diet or if you're smoking. But in reality, you can inherit a cancer not because, oh, I got it from my uncle or my, you know, or it carried down from my father. But it's the combination of two genotypes or phenotypes coming together, right? So, you know, a platy that does not have any black markings on its body has no regulatory gene for that. So when it crosses with a, a platy that, or a sore that does have black finnage, some of those offspring will get the black markings but not get the regulatory gene, huh. right, because its mother did not have that. And that will then cover the whole body just like a melanoma cancer. Interesting. So, you know, it's an interesting model about, and it applies to all animals, right, that sometimes disease happens not because you got it from one of your parents, but because the cross of your two parents, you know, one of them did not... Carry over a certain gene to stop the proliferation of a certain trait.
0: And that, and that black spotting slash dusting that we're seeing right now on this platy, um, I've seen that in other fish in a retail store setting. Is that only a true statement when it comes to the platy, and, and that kind of marking that we see in another fish, like a, an angelfish, for example, um, that isn't indicative of you know the regulatory um, you know ability to to regulate yeah. that.
1: Don't know if you crossed a gold angel with a stand I mean, usually when you cross a gold angel with a standard striped angel, you don't have this type of issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is really more of a um, case of where you have a lot of black that's on a fish that really shouldn't be there. Interesting. For example, the wag. You know, the wagtail platy was created by the cross of a wild platy with a uh, comet pattern. That's a a two bar black pattern on its, uh, uh, tail or uh, caudal fin with a standard ghost or gold platy, which was in the uh, pet shop trade. And what surprised everyone, what popped out was this pattern called the wagtail platy. And it's hard to find good wagtail platys now. Um, but if you do, they're really wonderful fish. If you can find some good ones. And so what happened was this, um, you know, the, the, it created more black, but then it actually stopped. Again, these fish's uh, genetics are really complex and unpredictable, um, which makes them fun to work with and makes them frustrating to work with too.
0: So so we're, it sounds like you are fairly accepting of the designer platy swordtails as well as having a passion for the naturally occurring ones. Is that a true of course. statement? Yeah, okay. look,
1: oh yeah, well, you know, I'm involved in a lot of fish clubs, and I always have to laugh when their Breeders' Award program says um, we will accept no hybrid fish into our Breeders' Award program. And I have to laugh because the hobby was built on hybrid fish. Mm-hmm. You know, the hobby was built on every angelfish you buy in the store, if it doesn't say wild, is a hybrid oh, yeah every zebra cichlid you buy an African cichlid is probably a hybrid. Most of the rainbow fish you're buying are hybrids. Uh, The tiger barbs you buy are hybrids and not hybrids recently. This is just done from fish farming over the past 150 years, you know, um, 120 years. So the hobby is built on these. I see nothing wrong there. What bothers me is when people put out these fish and call them by a species. So, in, and the pet shops do this, you know, you'll see a platy or soretail, they'll give it a scientific name. Uh, a pet shop platy and soretail is just Zephophrys species. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's a hybrid to get those colors. So I really think, I really wish BAP programs would give people points for both the retail versions of these fish as well as the wild versions so we can get some of the wild types into the hobby. And I think we don't have a lot of the wild types into the hobby, because people work with the pet shop types and they move on to another uh, kind of fish.
0: I like that you have an appreciation for both. I really do. I think that, you know, yeah. if you, you, you never know when somebody has your level of knowledge on a specific genus of, of fish, they can tend to be purists. And it's so, it, it's very nice to hear that you do have the appreciation for the fish that. You know get people into the hobby like i doubt you're going to get somebody into the hobby with the most naturally occurring form of a guppy versus you know some of these really beautiful colored you know farm bred fish right and now we're looking at uh three very long uh long fin what are those guys in a critter catcher looks like or a, a specimen yeah container. this is
1: this is this is, this is from the 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 united states premier um um sword tail, fancy swordtail breeder which is carl troshue and com. another good source to get your fish and he works with all these fancy fish usually with a lot of hyphens and um if you go to his website miami swordtails you can see some of his videos Carl and I are just watching one now to give you an example. You know, this is another trait that was put on these fish, which is this amazing hyphen here that they put on some of these animals. Um, you can see they put it on a Montezuma sword tail too. Wow! So, um, you know, that's, you know, their finnage color. There's a lot of varieties and then you have, you can specialize in any of the 22 species that are out there too, right? So if you want a more wild type, I find the wild type fish behavior is a lot more interesting um, because, um, you know, they haven't been raised on a fish farm, which means their behavior has been unnaturally selected to be a certain way. Um, The wild type fish, um, they generally show some you know, interesting social behavior and a pecking order that you can appreciate even in like a small aquarium. You know, you get some of the platies. A colony can in a ten-gallon tank, a species tank, you can really enjoy um, some of the uniqueness of those species. So then, in your very, ex- very easily
0: in your experience, then wild versus you know domestic slash designer strains of these fish. Um, you know, they're they're depending on who you talk to, the miss the. The prevailing thoughts are, you know, oh, wilds are way more hardy than the domestic ones. The domestic ones are so line bred that they're so fragile. And you know, you hear the exact opposite of, oh, no, wilds, you know, they fall apart once they get into a home aquarium. And the domestic ones are the ones that you want to stay with. Um, I mean, what has just been your experience on that, or is it just hit or miss, and it it it, it well, just depends on the I individual mean, I, species.
1: You know, the the the, the it depends there's th- really you can put the fish into into i think four different clusters you have wild caught fish so they come into the retailer from the wild those fish unfortunately when they're shipped they usually stop feeding them when you right so they don't soil themselves and uh, pollute the bags that they're in trouble is when that happens that proliferates any intestinal worms the fish have instead of those worms being pushed out through diet and uh digestion they tend to uh proliferate those fish can often come in weak um but if you know people who know how to get a good supplier of um and who ships quickly um like we have a shop here in new jersey called adam's uh pet safari in uh uh, chester he imports most of his fish picks them up at the airport treats them well um You know, but those fish are used to certain water conditions. Then you have fish that are tank raised, right? Hobbyists are raising wild type fish. These are the fish you see in fish clubs and fish club auctions. And um, those fish will adjust to your water conditions just fine because they've been braised that way. Then you have um, pet shop fish that come from fish farms, right? And fish farm fish have also, you know, generally depending upon the retailer, you know, they have to be shipped. Some retailers know how to take care of their fish and some don't. Um, You know, if they're bred from Florida, they're used to hard water conditions. If they come from Singapore, sometimes they're used to more neutral or acidic conditions. So it really depends on the source where your fish come from rather than a wild versus fancy, Mm. some of the fancy guppies. And again, you look at, for example, how about a, a fish room that focuses on fancy guppies? Well, often in the fancy guppy hobby, these fish are kept in mostly sterile conditions. There's not even a plant in some of these tanks, right? Any little bit of bacteria, the fish's fins go bad. Um, Keeping those fish and buying them and putting them in your home aquarium, it can be a gamble, right? Because they're used to such sterile uh, conditions. I'm not a big fan of keeping a tank perfectly clean, to be honest with you. I think um, when I put my fish outside in the summer, they get the water changed around Memorial Day, and that's it. They're out there all summer until around October 1st with no water changes. The rain might top them off. I might top them off with water from my tap, um, but that's it. Um, I think sometimes if you keep these real sterile laboratory conditions, your fish just don't get hardy enough, you know. Um, but that's 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 just my theory. You
0: no, know, that makes that makes really. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely. Kind now, of that.
1: That doesn't mean you shouldn't change water. You should do yes, as for large sure. volume for of water changes as frequently <laughs> as you can. And now that we're all stuck at home, you guys have no excuse to not change the
0: water <laughs> a lot. There should be so much fish tank maintenance going on right now that just all across yeah. the country that, you know, the fish the fish have never been happier in the home setting right now. And actually right. yesterday, I did a, uh, my fish room has an auto water change system with overflow, but my 75 gallon display tank, I actually did a, a nice large water change on it because I'm working from home and it's, you know, kind of quarantine day, right. so, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, no, that's, yeah. and But, you know, I, I, I think where it gets bad is when, you know, like you see some of these tanks are all bare bottom tank or they vacuum their gravel uh, completely. And, you know, I think what we're learning more, especially we're all using um, a lot of the people in the hobby, the breeders are using Matin filters now. Um, and the way a Matin filter works, it's a piece of Porex foam that is put in the corner or, you know, on one side of the tank with water running through it. The key is never to clean that filter. Because in nature, Mother Nature doesn't clean the the side of a stream or a pond. You never clean that filter because different bacteria, not only the biological bacteria we are familiar with, but things like arc reactions, enzymes, microorganisms, they start to invade that foam. And that's when a tank really gets in balance. You know, I always talk about, we've all had the experience in our fish rooms where we've had a tank where we forgot about. The filter has been off. We left the fish in there. We didn't feed it. We come back a few months later and there it is in the tank swimming fine and there's no ammonia levels. It's because there's a there's been a biological bacteria, enzymes, arc reactions, and other things that have occurred a biofilm a microfauna in that tank that is clean that tank and that's what happens when when you set up your tub ponds outside early and that's what happens in your home aquarium too i'm not saying don't clean your tank and you shouldn't vacuum some of the mum up but if you're keeping live plants that mum that's in your gravel that's creating soil conditions that your plants need Mm -hmm. so you 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 sometimes can clean too much you know it's sort of like how they say don't use hand sanitizers all the time because you start to not be able to react to certain bacteria in your environment we get too clean i mean now with covid19 we all have to be extra clean because we have no immunity defense but you know there is something to say about trying to keep yeah. things a little more
0: natural. So the way the matten filter works, just to talk this out loud and to get your opinion then, so matten filter is going to work with the water uh, flowing through the foam, and it's being expelled back out the other side through an uplift tube, right, with an outlet. Uh, either,
1: the, right, so either an uplift tube or what I do, I'll put an internal power filter like mm-hmm. a little Whisper 10 internal on the other side of the foam. hmm and i'll i'll sometimes just use that you know or or you know you can use an airstone and
0: and where, where I'm going with this then is the traditional sponge filter that uh, basically pushes water through an uplift tube, right? So it's running down your airline tubing into kind of a center chamber, whether you let it just bubble into the center chamber and back up the uplift tube or through an air stone. Do you, do you then take the same Matin Filter Don't Clean It principle and apply that to the foam of a traditional sponge filter? Or is it the difference in how the water flows where, you know, Matten and filter. Yeah, no, you won't need to clean that one. But Ted's opinion is that you should still clean the traditional round sponge filter.
1: Yeah. I'm you know, I'm, I'm, it, you know, it, it all depends. If your water is rock hard and really hard, sometimes you'd have to clean that filter just because it becomes like a uh, cement. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my friends down in the Florida farms do that, but, I am now also of the opinion not to really clean that filter.
0: Um, You're making me Mike feel killed. real good right now because I, I cannot no. stand maintain, maintaining my sponge filter. Yeah. So I'm happy to hear you I, say that.
1: <laughs> I, I, I think what happens is what we're realizing now is even a sponge filter is 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 not enough to sometimes create what 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 what, what a Matten filter can do. Um, what a you know that the the large surface area of a Matten filter, if you leave it there over many, many months, will create a biofilm and microfauna that will um, really create tremendous water quality. But for me, it creates a feeding zone, right? If you've ever seen little fry um, of your fish picking at your sponge filter, well, imagine a whole Matten filter of that. So that's been a real key of how I've found baby fish. I, for example, I just found some weird uh, mascara barbs on the other side of my Matten filter the other day because I moved a piece of hornwort plant over there. There were some eggs on it. I haven't been feeding these things, and they're pretty good size now. They've been picking at the microorganisms on the Matten filter. Mm-hmm. So on the sponge filter, that happens too. What, what My friend Mike Helwig, who I think is arguably the best breeder of fish in the United States, down in St. Louis does. He also wrote the seminal book, um, How to Culture Live Foods. Doesn't do YouTube. So a lot of the new hobbyists don't know yeah. who he is. But yeah. but you know, you know, fortunately most of the real experienced hobbies are older and they don't do YouTube. And um, um he says when he has to go on vacation, if he has to go away, he will squeeze out the sponge filter to feed his uh baby fish. Because there's all types of microorganisms in there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm moving away from cleaning my sponge filters now and just trying to make sure that there is enough flow in there so the water
0: flows um, through. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's that would be the one determining that's factor. That's all the learnings and... from the Matten filter, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, is with, with not cleaning the sponge filter. And, you know, I've got soft water, so I don't have to deal with the calcium buildup like maybe somebody in Florida would, but am I, um, am I impacting my water flow around in the aquarium? Um, and then I guess if I'm not getting the water flow through the sponge filter, is the bacteria in there then dying off? because it's being clogged or is there still enough just inherent flow and circulation that that's not even a concern and it oh, is. Oh, no,
1: I, yeah, I, that, that's, that's always been a concern for us. But if you look at how the matten filters work, that, that hypothesis seems to not be true mm. because you would think that, you know, other processes take over, right? Um, well, water that, finds that, a way, that, like
0: water finds a way through something, unless it's a completely solid surface, water right. will find a way. Right. I've learned so, that with a fish room for sure. <laughs>
1: right. And, you know, one of the things about the Matten filters is that the water has to go through that area. It has to go through that sponge to get out. Whereas mm-hmm. with a sponge filter, the water goes up through a tube. So sometimes, depending on the design of the sponge filter, you don't know if the water is coming through that sponge. Yeah. So that's why some people are using matten filters and creating their yeah. own sponges now too. They're, they're doing away with the little center. They're just putting tubes directly through a sponge and having the water come through there because they know it's coming through the sponge. But there, there's a lot more reactions going on both in your pond or in your tub pond and in your mat filter and your filters. And we realize I think a mistake a lot of hobbyists make is when they use a an overhanging power filter and they'll clean the filter, which is fine, but they'll clean that sponge Mm that's inside the filter or that.
0: Bio rings or yep. yep.
1: Don't do it. And now I'm saying, you know I used to rinse it out. Like probably you did Randy in the water that I'm changing out. I would give it a rinse in there. I didn't want to put it under the tap water that has uh, a chlorine. I'm not even doing that now. I'm just keeping it in that filter. I don't want to, to touch that thing i want that is that is your life force in there so i'm just leaving it there and i will replace the filter pad i'll put some carbon in carbon is a good thing to use especially when you introduce new fish but i'll leave that biological media alone now
0: Mm, good stuff. And yeah, we're looking at uh, some Swiss Tropicals pictures. And actually in my fish room, I, I had ordered a good number of uh matten filters from Swiss Tropicals quality. Yeah. Uh S- Steven Tanner's uplift tubes are fantastic, uh air-driven uplift tubes. Like he has yes. these these little micro holes that you know you've gotta you've gotta have a real good DIY setup at home to kind of replicate what he does with those uplift tubes. I've I've gone yeah, you aw- do. I've gone away from them just to using sponge filters because I found that when I was working with some guppies that you know I would always see like, man, this this tank looks a little light on guppies. And sure enough, they would go, they would swim into the uplift tube, go back the other side, and you know, would eventually just oh, okay. succumb. Yeah. And well, so and so I could see well, like people so... with bigger fish that not being as much of a concern. But for me, yeah. I was like, eh, I'll just run sponge filters. And so I pulled them out.
1: Yeah. So so what I did, I I took I took the tubes from the mat and filter and actually took a knife and cut a little slit Right down the top of the matten filter, I put the tubes inside the matten
0: filter. So do I. Yeah, I did. Th- so the yeah the, ven- the venerable matten filter, that second picture in the middle, that's exactly what yeah. I did. and I have a cut on my finger from a brand new utility blade. <laughs> to, oh to, wow! To, wow. To... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, that thing will slice yeah. through your finger like like a knife through hot or wow. a hot knife through butter. Well,
1: I, well, you know, I've I've been again, I've been using those, you know, ten dollar, fifteen dollar whisper internal power filters and putting them just on the other side of the mat and filter.
0: Mm, so maybe two m- um, more instead, flow. Yeah.
1: Well, it's not just more flow, but you know, if I have to raise the heat to breed fish an internal power filter is going to raise it up about four degrees anyway. Mm-hmm. So I get a little extra heat. So my heater doesn't work as much or my heater in the room doesn't work as much. Um, and then if I need to put carbon in the tank, for some reason, I can easily put in carbon, right? Regular mat and filter, you can't really do that. So um, but that's what I've been doing. Sometimes I've been pushing the mat and filter all the way over to one side and putting the filter on that other side um, so I can have an aquascape tank. So that that's kind of, you know, it's a lot of stuff to plug in versus just having a bunch of tubing. Yeah. But um, I don't heat my, you know, I heat my whole fish room, to a comfortable level for me and then i have to bring up the heat for certain tanks for other things but great thing about platys and swordtails you really don't need really a lot of high heat for yeah, them right yeah. you can do almost ambient temperatures yeah
0: well, Ted, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've taken up, you know, I think well more than the kind of the allotted time that I yes. should for a, for we a went, guest. <laughs>
1: we 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 actually went on many
0: tangents. We did, Sorry we did. That, no, man. no, that's a, this is, what, what I love about this this podcast is that it's not like, we kind of have like a general idea of what I would like the guests to talk about that they specialize in, but we're going to go down tangents and we're going to go on a, you know, we're just going to have two fish nerds having a conversation. And,
1: you right, know, I, right.
0: I, I, I enjoy it. I think the people that listen to this podcast Enjoy it, and you know, Ted. Clearly, you are, you know, just like you know our good friend Joe Ferdenzi, Like you are somebody that has got so much experience and so much knowledge in this hobby that you know, if uh, technical difficulties aside, which Ted and I we had we had a bit of a struggle to make this thing happen. Oh yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, I would love to have you on again in the future to talk about you know maybe go more in depth on uh, on the pond, uh, you know, pond season, or you know, one one of your other uh, many specialty history areas. Of the hobby, oh, man, history, yeah. history of the hobby. Yeah, that would. You yeah. know what? I should get. I need. We need to try to get Joe. Let's get Joe on it as well, and I'll have my you and friend, Joe.
1: My old friend and mentor, Joe Fredenzi, I, I, I have visited Joe's basement, which is his the mecca of aquarium history. He has an entire uh, display room of ancient tanks and artifacts that's truly amazing i
0: have been lucky enough uh i've had dinner at joe and anita with uh, joe and anita and i recorded my second interview with him down in that basement and it was such a it was such an awesome experience because that was only like the second legit fish room that i had been in since getting back into the hobby uh, and to have it to be Joe's fish room it, it is just phenomenal. And, and, you know, Joe helped line up an interview with Rosario LaCorte at the 2018 aquatic experience for me. And that was an awesome experience. Um, but yeah, you know, Ted, you are, uh, you are equally as awesome, my man. So I have appreciated this conversation so much. And, uh, you know, if you, if you'll come back on in the future, man, I would love to have you.
1: Sure. Anytime, Randy. It and, was very good speaking with you today.
0: And to leave the folks, so I will leave, uh, the link to the pond book that's on Amazon. Your other live bear book, is that also available for purchase? Am I going to be able to link that one for people?
1: Yeah, that's, um, that's available now from tropical, from animal planet okay. and tropical fish hobbyist. The live bear book, I think is only an ebook now. Okay. No problem. Um, but you can get hard copies. I think, um, through secondary sources. So I will... And that's The Aquarium Care of Live Bearers. That's from 2008.
0: So I will link those two books in the show mm-hmm. notes. Is there anything else, any social media presence, anything else you want me to have, to link to so people no, can... just,
1: well, um, I was supposed to give my talk on container ponds for aquarium hobbyists on... Um, March 18th down in the St. Louis um, Aquarium Society. I'm sorry, the Missouri area Aquarium Society, which is uh, Gary Lang and Mike Helwig's club mm-hmm. that got canceled because of COVID-19 supposed to give the same talk. April 3rd at my club got canceled and also at the Northeast Council of Aquarium Society convention, which is open to everyone on April 18th also also got canceled. So in lieu of this, I'm going to be doing a public broadcast, a webinar, of um, it's called Take It Outside um, Container Ponds for Aquarium Hobbyists and Water Gardeners on Friday, April 3rd at 8pm Eastern Daylight Time um, on YouTube. And if you go to the Tub Pond Handbook YouTube channel, or you can look for the event on Facebook, you can get all the information you just go right on YouTube and you can sit through the seminar and it'll be a um, webinar rather than you know we'll, we'll have your your whole screen will be the actual powerpoint presentation and i'll be narrating it and uh, we have people from all around the world going to be attending it as we're all stuck inside so the fish club the business of fish club fishy fellowship continues it's just going to continue online for a while. So I hope all of your listeners, if they're interested, they're more than welcome to come.
0: Awesome. And then, if they miss the live stream portion of that, is it still going to be available, just in a recorded fashion, available on the YouTube channel for people to go back and watch it in the future? Yeah. Awesome. Um,
1: I'm, yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm thinking. You know, I'm. I generally don't put my presentations on YouTube because, and I don't, I don't let people film it either because I don't. I want people to come out to live fish clubs,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, you know, so but I probably will keep it up for people who missed it for like about 24 hours or so.
0: Okay, that's fair that's very fair alright Ted well thank you so much sir again I, I cannot thank you enough for coming on I appreciate you uh, sacrificing oh, so much ranch. time and it, it's been a great talk and I I mean this happens every single episode but you know especially just talking with you hearing your passion for swordtails um, and platies, and just knowing that there's so much more to them than just what we think we know based on you know strolling into any big box store and, and seeing these fish but knowing that there's just so much more to them mm-hmm. um, thank you so much again Ted for sharing
1: Oh, well, thank you, Randy. Thanks for having me. And I hope uh, you and your family stay healthy.